The war in Ukraine continues to rage as the world is engulfed in a crisis that has the potential to reconfigure global politics in fundamental ways. What consequences has the war brought about so far? Which side is winning? How can peace truly be established? We discuss these questions as well as the consequences of climate change, the far right and COVID and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's March 1st, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. As I noted in the introduction, we're gonna start today's show with discussing the latest in Ukraine. We're pre-recording the show on Monday the 28th around 1.30 p.m. So Brian, let's start by framing what's going on in Ukraine. All right, I'm gonna toss it in a moment to Walter who has an update. Of course, as you said, we're recording on Monday afternoon, February 28th. The General Assembly was brought into emergency session earlier on Monday after the Security Council resolution condemning Russia did not pass. And of course, it did not pass because Russia vetoed it. Russia was is one of the five members of the Security Council that has veto authority. China, in that vote, abstained. Of course, China is an ally of Russia, but it abstained, which at least in the U.S. media is being considered by the United States. This is what the U.S. media is saying is that the United States considers China's abstention to be something of a diplomatic victory for the State Department and for U.S. diplomacy. We had a, a chance on Saturday to have a live stream discussion with Abby Martin from Empire Files. That was a collaboration between Breakthrough News. Breakthrough News, of course, is an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, broad-based media network that provides many different viewpoints within the context of anti-imperialism. The Empire Files, too, that makes videos, that has produced so much from the point of view of documentary evidence about the crimes of imperialism. They have a new movie coming out about climate change. So anyway, we had this live stream. As of right now, more than 100,000 people have watched that show. We encourage people to go to the Empire Files or to Breakthrough News to watch the show. It's two hours. It's in-depth. So thank you again to Breakthrough News and to the Empire Files. Over the weekend, Walter, the Russian government, the Putin-led government, put 
Russia's nuclear weapons on high alert. And of course, that really raises the stakes. It raises the ante, the idea, the specter of nuclear war is more front and center than it has been in a long time. Russia said that it was going into Ukraine to demilitarize the country. It was going in to denazify the country. Of course, and a couple of days before Putin announced that the Russian Federation was invading Ukraine, he called it a special military operation, not, a, not an invasion. He said that the Russian government at long last was finally going to recognize the independent people's republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, the Russian-speaking or Russian populations in eastern Ukraine who had declared independent republics following the right-wing fascist-led coup d'etat in February 2014 that changed the equation and changed internal politics in Ukraine and changed regional politics. Up until then, Ukraine had been basically a neutral country. The Yanukovych government that was overthrown by the coup was balancing between east and west. Then the coup happens, again, literally led by Nazis and neo-Nazis. They don't today constitute the main part of the Ukrainian government. They are a factor in Ukrainian life, social life, political life, military life, police life. They're not a dominant faction within the current government, but they were the muscle that carried out the coup d'etat in February 2014 that did indeed ignite this civil war in the eastern part of Ukraine. And thousands of people have died. I mean, we are all shocked horrified by the people who are dying right now in Ukraine, Ukrainians, Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian soldiers, Russian soldiers. That's terrible. But people should also know that the killing didn't just start, that after that coup d'etat in the civil war, the Ukrainian government used weapons supplied by the United States and other NATO members to carry out a war against its own people in the eastern part. And thousands and thousands of those people have died. Walter, when I think about this military operation, this invasion of Ukraine, and again, we have put the onus on NATO and the United States for attempting to use Ukraine as a staging ground to put advanced weapons that would target Russia, that the U.S. and NATO knew that Russia would never accept the placement of major advanced weapons on its border, which is 1,200 miles long with Ukraine. The U.S. and NATO knew what would happen or what was likely to happen. So we hold them responsible. They could have said yes all this time to Russia's legitimate demands that Ukraine be neutral, that it not be part of NATO, that there won't be advanced missiles placed on the Ukraine-Russian border. The U.S. could have done that, but did not do that. So they have their responsibility. I would say the major part of the responsibility for the current crisis. That doesn't mean that we support the military operation by Russia against Ukraine. In fact, if you think about the big picture, the biggest tragedy, Ukraine and Russia were sister and brother peoples. They were sister and brother peoples during the entire period of the USSR, the Soviet Union. The treaty that formed the Soviet Union in 1922 that was ratified by the Soviet Constitution of 1924 meant that Russia was an, a republic and Ukraine was a republic, but they were both socialist republics and they were part of the same country, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And together they 
advanced their economies. They grew. Education grew. Housing grew. You know, the social cultural level of the people grew. The economic welfare of the people increased. Together, they fought against Nazi Germany and defeated fascism at great human cost. Millions died, millions of Russians, millions of Ukrainians. And the Soviet Union was overthrown by a group of capitalist counter-revolutionaries led by, first and foremost, Boris Yeltsin, who was not a Ukrainian nationalist. He was a Russian nationalist. They overthrew the Soviet Union. They did so illegally with an arbitrary declaration in December 1991. And since that time, since Ukraine is now under the rule of the oligarchs and Russia became under the rule of the oligarchs, the refounded capitalist class in both those countries, here we are 30 years later. And instead of being comrades, instead of being people living together and enjoying the benefits of cooperation and socialism, Russians and Ukrainians are killing each other. And if you want to think about the great tragedy here, it's the actual dissolution of the Soviet Union itself, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the ending of socialism, which inevitably returns the phenomena of nationalist rivalry and bourgeois war. Anyway, there's a many, many different sides of this, Walter, and we've talked about it a lot in the last month. We're going to keep talking about it. It is, as Nicole said in the beginning, something that's going to reshape global politics. That's already happening. You know, the genie is out of the bottle. But let's get an update from you, Walter. Again, we're recording Monday afternoon. Negotiations were taking place between Russia and Ukraine. The General Assembly was taking place. Countries that in the past had been neutral are no longer neutral. Anyway, just give us the big picture of of the latest. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, of course, in any war, it's very difficult to discern fact from fiction. But I think we do know enough to conclude that this war is going badly for Russia. This is not going the way that Russia anticipated or hoped for it to go. I think what Putin was hoping to have happen was a very quick military conflict where the Russian military would have a lightning offensive into Kiev primarily disperse the government, topple the government of President Zelensky, and install a government that's committed to neutrality of Ukraine, meaning not seeking membership in NATO and not allowing weapon systems to be placed on Ukrainian territory. That has not happened. Not only is Kiev still under the control of the Ukrainian government and President Zelensky is in Kiev leading that operation, other major urban centers throughout Ukraine are still under the control of the government. For instance, Kharkiv, which is very near the border with Russia, in the south, Mariupol and Odessa, two other key Russian strategic targets, those have not yet fallen. And I mean, prior to the invasion, Estimates were that, you know, Kharkiv could fall within hours. U.S. intelligence thought that Kiev would fall within one to four days. That has not come to pass. The resistance by Ukrainian forces seems to be a lot stiffer. And there, there is a full-scale mobilization of the population of Ukraine, actually, into the armed forces and into irregular armed units to do that, to carry out that war. Essentially, there's there's a race going on. On the one hand, you have Russia trying to reverse the geopolitical tide in Europe with a quick war. That's what they want to do, have a quick war. And on the other hand, 
the Western powers, the United States and their allies in Europe and other allies around the world are hoping to exact the maximum economic and political and diplomatic cost on Russia as the war goes on. So what we've seen in the last few days is a really severe sanctions package that's led to the ruble, that's the Russian currency, falling to its lowest value on record relative to the U.S. dollar. The price of oil and gas has gone up. And major sanctions have been imposed primarily on the Russian financial sector, both on the Russian central bank and major private banks, which have been removed from the SWIFT system, essentially cut off from the architecture of global finance, and the entire Russian financial system may still be cut off from SWIFT. So far, we have not seen sanctions on the Russian oil and natural gas sector. That would be highly, highly significant. The Russian economy is heavily dependent on oil and natural gas exports. But the political and diplomatic cost has also been very severe for Russia so far. I mean, there's international condemnation, very large demonstrations taking place in cities all throughout Europe in support of the Ukrainian position. And some governments that have been essentially either neutral or not fully supportive of NATO's ultra-aggressive policy towards Russia have now fully shifted over to the side of the anti-Russia hawks. The German government, which has a longstanding policy of not exporting arms into areas where there are active conflicts, have announced that they will do exactly that. The government of Finland, which has been neutral for Generations, I mean, since the beginning of the Cold War and shares a border with Russia, they said that they're also considering sending, you know, lethal weaponry to Ukraine. The condemnation at the United Nations, I think, really does pose a problem for Russia. And I think this also frays their alliance with China. Um, China has a great deal of political sensitivity to the question of territorial integrity. And this is all positive for the United States. Um, they've already killed the Nord Stream pipeline. They've rallied these other countries to their cause firmly under their umbrella. So I, I think that this is shaping up to be really a serious problem for Putin and for the Russian government. The sanctions are extremely cruel. They're designed to inflict collective punishment on the Russian population and will affect Russian workers the most by making life extremely difficult. Prices will rise, goods will become scarce. But you know, those sanctions are also having an effect on the Russian capitalist class. I mean, Russia is a capitalist society. It has a capitalist government. And we saw two of the most important capitalists in Russia more or less come out against the war. Uh, Oleg Deripaska, who's in the aluminum industry, and Mikhail Friedman, uh, these are two of the richest people in Russia. They're both very politically connected billionaires. They've come out essentially in opposition to Putin's policy, and they probably represent the view of a significant section, if not the majority section, of Russian capitalists. So this is um, it's a race against time for the Russian military, and it does not appear that they are succeeding fast enough to essentially make it worth it, to make the economic and political pain that's been inflicted on the country by the West worth whatever they're going to extract in terms of concessions from Ukraine. Let's talk about how some of the other countries in the world have reacted, Nicole. Of course, Cuba and Russia have a close relationship. Russia also has a good relationship with Venezuela and Nicaragua, not to mention the People's Republic of China. So in many, many ways, and other countries too, Iran, the countries that have been targeted by U.S. imperialism have looked for aid and assistance to Russia and to China because they're both major countries, and Russia and China have found 
within and amongst each other and between each other an alliance of sorts in order to defend their own countries against the onslaught from U.S. demonization that is demonizing countries, occupying countries, sanctioning countries. And in the case of Russia and China, the U.S. is preparing for major power conflict meaning with Russia and China. That's one of the reasons that the Russian government was so alarmed about the incorporation of Ukraine into NATO, either formally or as in a de facto way, because if the U.S. is preparing for war against Russia, which it is, and Ukraine, which is the largest country in Europe, which shares a 1,200-mile border with Russia, if that becomes the staging ground for U.S. and NATO advanced weapons, that's an existential threat. And China, too, is well aware that ever since Obama announced the pivot to Asia, it's really a pivot towards war in Asia, meaning a war with China. So let's get a sense of how Cuba and China are reacting. Of course, Cuba and China also had relations with Ukraine. In the case of Cuba, for instance, Ukraine voted on behalf of Cuba against the U.S. blockade of Cuba, along with almost every other country in the world, only the U.S. and Israel vote yes to the blockade. So anyway, I think you have some of their statements. Yeah. So Cuba's statement is titled, Cuba champions a solution that guarantees the security and sovereignty of all. And I think fairly unsurprisingly, their statement is very nuanced and has a lot of important components. It starts by saying the U.S. determination to continue NATO's progressive expansion towards the Russian Federation borders has brought about a scenario with implications of unpredictable scope, which could have been avoided. So right out of the gate, you know, they're identifying NATO and the U.S. as being not only the causal mechanism here. I mean, essentially the reason that this war is being fought, but also that, you know, it was completely avoidable as well. U.S. and NATO's military moves, I'm reading from the statement again, U.S. and NATO's military moves toward regions adjacent to the Russian Federation in recent months, preceded by the delivery of modern weapons to Ukraine, which together can form a military siege, are well known. It is impossible to make a rigorous and honest exam of the current situation in Ukraine without carefully assessing the Russian Federation's just claims to the United States and NATO and the factors that have led to the use of force and non-observance of legal principles and international norms that Cuba strongly supports and are particularly for small countries an essential reference against hegemony, abuse of power, and injustice. So again, you know, here they're laying out why the Russian Federation did have just claims, and, and they go a little more into that later in the statement. Cuba champions the international law and is committed to the charter of the UN, Cuba will always defend peace and oppose the use or threat to use force against any state. They go on, we deeply regret the loss of innocent civilian lives in Ukraine. The Cuban people have had and continue to have a very close relationship with the Ukrainian people. History will hold the United States accountable for the consequences of an increasingly offensive military doctrine outside NATO's borders, which threatens international peace, security, and stability. I think it's very clear here that they are locating the problem within the United States and within NATO and what NATO has been doing. They go on to say, ignoring for decades the well-founded claims of the Russian Federation concerning security guarantees and assuming that Russia would remain defenseless in the face of a direct threat to its national security was a mistake. Russia has the right to defend itself. 
peace cannot be achieved by sieging or cornering states. They also add the draft resolution on the situation of Ukraine not adopted in the Security Council on the 25th of February, which will be submitted to the General Assembly, was not intended as a genuine contribution to resolve the current crisis. So they're essentially criticizing that as well. There's more here, but I'll read the last important bits, at least in my mind. We call for a serious, constructive, and realistic diplomatic solution to the current crisis in Europe by peaceful means, ensuring the security and sovereignty of all and regional and international peace, stability, and security. Cuba rejects hypocrisy and double standards. It should be recalled that in 1999, the United States and NATO launched a major aggression against Yugoslavia, a European country that was fragmented with a high cost in human lives in pursuit of geopolitical objectives, disregarding the UN Charter. The United States and some allies have used force on many occasions. They've invaded sovereign states to bring about regime changes and interfere in the internal affairs of other nations that don't submit to their interests of domination and defend their territorial integrity and independence. And lastly, they are also responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians, which they call, quote unquote, collateral damage, millions of displaced persons, and for the enormous destruction of the geography of our planet because of their plundering wars. So. You know, I didn't read every bit of the statement, but very clearly, like, again, they are identifying NATO and the United States as the problem here. China has, frankly, a pretty similar set of principles. They released their position on Ukraine in five different points. The first point, China firmly advocates abiding by the UN Charter and respecting the territorial integrity of all countries, including Ukraine. Number two, the security of one country cannot be strengthened at the expense of another, and Russia is justified to have concerns about five rounds of NATO expansion. Number three, China believes all parties should exercise restraint and protect civilian life and property to prevent a large-scale humanitarian crisis. Number four, China supports direct dialogue and negotiation between Russia and Ukraine as soon as possible and believes Ukraine should be a bridge between East and West, not a frontier of great power confrontation. Number five, the UN Security Council should be used to facilitate a diplomatic solution and cool tensions rather than fuel them. China has always opposed UN resolutions that invoke Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which authorizes military and non-military steps to restore international peace and security. Well, as I read China and Cuba statements, they are walking a tightrope. They don't want to abandon Russia. They are affirming that Russia has justifiable claims because they see that NATO and the United States have been provocative, they've been reckless, they've caused this crisis, that they could have easily said yes instead of saying no to Russia about Russia's demands, the red lines about Ukraine not being a staging ground. So Cuba and China are saying yes to Russia. They're not condemning it. China has also avoided the language of invasion So they're, in a way, giving an explanation about why justice ahead of the invasion is on the side of Russia and that the U.S. and NATO are responsible. They're also reaffirming national sovereignty. They're also reaffirming basic principles in the U.N. Charter, which means that one member nation cannot use violence against another member nation except under the conditions or circumstances of immediate self-defense. Like not self-defense in five years, but you know, 
if another country is attacking you, then you have a right to use violence against a member nation. But otherwise, no, the UN Charter upholds national sovereignty. So I think that this is not a full-out embrace and should not be considered a full, all-out embrace of Russia's decision to have a military operation. In fact, I would guess, and I would say this with a high degree of confidence, that the Cubans and the Chinese are very unhappy that Russia undertook this military operation, even though they understand why Russia took it. And the reason you can see that they are unhappy is because they are affirming those parts of sort of their principles in the UN Charter that make it against the rules to invade another country. So anyway, Walter, my view is that the Cubans don't want to abandon Russia. The Chinese don't want to abandon Russia. They want to affirm their the justice and the righteousness of their assertions, but they don't want to uh, embrace the invasion. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, you know, Cuba is a blockaded country. Russia is one of the, the few countries that they can do trade with. I mean, that's an important factor. China also is under increasing U.S. economic measures, effectively sanctions, tariffs, it's clear that the world is going into this period of confrontation. And so it's it would be simply impossible for countries that think that Russia is making a strategic mistake to go out and say that openly and emphasize that. I think wisely, these statements are emphasizing what's being left out by the corporate media, by the politicians representing the imperialist countries, which is that this comes as a consequence of a quarter of a century of NATO expansion up to Russia's doorstep, coupled with a whole host of other aggressive actions. So, I mean, that is an essential missing piece to add to the global narrative that's being formed around why Russia acted the way that it did. I want to go in a moment, Esther, to the media coverage and how skewed it is in so many different ways about the war. But before we do that, I want to make two other really quick points. One is that the Ukrainian ambassador spoke early Monday before the General Assembly he made the point that there had been no other major war or land war. He threw in land war in Europe since the end of World War II. And I was like, OK, but there was a war and it was NATO's war against Yugoslavia. And NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on a small country. I mean, Yugoslavia is really a small country. And those bombs were on Serbia and Kosovo, all in the name of defending the Muslim minority part of Serbia that was living in the province of Kosovo. And the fact that the U.S. and its allies, including the Ukrainian government, keep like not mentioning that NATO was the aggressor. I mean, Yugoslavia didn't go to war against NATO countries. NATO went to war against Yugoslavia and thousands of Yugoslavs died. And it was considered like fine. No big deal. So anyway, I just wanted to point out that the hypocrisy of all of America's allies, including the Ukrainian government, the current Ukrainian government in the presentation on this issue. But I want to go back and before we end this part in terms of just assessing where the war is right now, because it hasn't gone according to plan. The Russians, as you said, Walter, had hoped that just by announcing that their major special military operation into Ukraine would be so overwhelming 
that the Zelensky government would crumble, it would flee, the Russians could come in and help recreate a new Ukrainian government that would be pledged to be neutral and essentially bring Ukraine into, in essence, a Russian sphere of influence. That was the goal. But instead, there's been a lot of resistance. There's been a lot of problems with the intervention. You know, there's the famous cliche that no battle plan ever survives its first engagement with the enemy. You know, things go wrong. The fog of war is in so many different directions. And instead of the Zelensky government crumbling, Zelensky stayed in place. He refused to leave. He said, we're going to arm the people. He told the people to launch essentially urban and, and rural guerrilla warfare against the Russian forces. And the rest of the world started to rally to Ukraine and big parts of the Ukrainian population are volunteering to fight against a foreign country that's coming into their homeland. Everything has really pretty much gone off the rails in terms of what Russia hoped for. The only way Russia could have really succeeded was with an almost instantaneous victory. But now, because the resistance is hard to overcome and Russia can't, and Putin can't afford to lose, they're using heavier and heavier weapons against Ukrainian cities. So there is the bombing of Kharkiv, the second biggest city. Kiev is the capital. Kharkiv is in the eastern part of the country. And Walter, as of Monday afternoon, pretty heavy shelling of Kharkiv. And that's a Russian population, a Russian-speaking population in the eastern part of Ukraine. That would mean that the resistance going on is including people who have historically identified as Russians. Otherwise, this kind of heavy bombing wouldn't be required. That would mean that the Russian military intervention, even for people in Ukraine, Russian-speaking parts of the population especially, who didn't identify with the coup, did not identify with Nazis, are now reaffirming Ukrainian identity in the face of a foreign invasion. That would be a nightmare for Putin because he was hoping to have just the opposite impact. Anyway, that's my reading of it. I think you're right. I mean, as the deadlock, essentially, or as the slow slog of the war continues, the temptation for the Russian military to use heavier and heavier weapons and to use them more indiscriminately, frankly, will increase. I mean, I think in the opening days of the war, the Russian government and military was making a political calculation, a correct political calculation, that if there were massive civilian casualties, it would make it almost impossible for them to achieve their political objectives, which is a new neutral government in Ukraine. But if the choice is between military defeat or stalemate on the one hand or employing the full capability of the Russian armed forces, I think they're going to choose to employ their full capability. And that would you know, cause a huge amount of suffering. Of course, in any war, workers are the ones who suffer the most. And it would probably prompt an even more stringent sanctions response from the Western countries. I mean, the Russian, not all Russian banks are cut off from the SWIFT system, but that could change. Russian natural gas and oil exports, which would be the most painful thing, at least in terms of the European countries, to target. That could happen as well. That's on the table. So yeah, I mean, this thing has a lot of room to escalate. One final thing I wanted to mention, though, it is important to note that there are talks going on for the first time between the Ukrainian and the Russian side. On Monday morning, they had negotiations along the 
border between Ukraine and Belarus. The meeting lasted for a long time, about five hours, which is longer than people expected it to. There's, of course, you know, very conflicting reports. Details are murky, but they have agreed to meet again. And so the other end of this is that forces within the Russian political and economic elite who see the same thing that we're seeing, see this sort of going off the rails, there could be internal political pressure on the Putin government and on Putin himself to negotiate too. So, I mean, a lot of different directions that this could go tremendously, tremendously dangerous situation. One thing that's so important for the left, and we emphasize this in our discussion with Abby Martin on Saturday and you know, my conversations with Eugene per year, we've had four different episodes. And, you know, I consider Eugene to be perhaps the most knowledgeable analyst about the war and the situation in Europe. The thing that we've emphasized over and over again is that for us in the United States who are anti-imperialists, who can see the machinations of our government or the government that speaks in our name, let's put it that way. It's not our government. It's the bourgeoisie's government the government that speaks in our name, they have caused this crisis. They have caused it. And so we're saying to everybody in the United States, your responsibility is to hold the government that speaks in your name that's created the crisis, hold them to account. It's easy to join the chorus and just condemn Russia. That's not a big problem. That's not that hard. What's hard is to get up and say, look, it's you. It's the Biden administration. It's Trump. It's the people who canceled the ABM treaty and the INF treaty, who carried out the coup in 2014, who are using Ukraine as a staging ground for World War III against Russia in a way that would make Russia unable to defend itself. You're responsible. We want to say that. That's our role. But at the same time, there's no reason for us to be camp followers of the governments that are in conflict with U.S. imperialism. There's no reason for us to be able to say, oh, because we're exposing U.S. imperialism and we agree that Russia has legitimate security concerns, that we have to put Vladimir Putin on a pedestal and say, oh, he's the great leader against imperialism. That's not actually true. I mean, he's trying in his own sort of Napoleonic way, using military force against Ukraine, to defend what he perceives to be Russia's national interests and their very legitimate security interests. But the fact of the matter is, when Putin was describing why, why the Russian government was going to do something of a military character in Ukraine, whether it was you know, incorporating the, the, or supporting militarily coming openly to the support of the two people's republics in the East or something larger, he made the argument that Ukraine was, in a way, a fake country, that it was created by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks' policy on self-determination, that the Treaty of 1922 and the Soviet Constitution of 1924 created this thing called the Republic of Ukraine, which had never existed before because Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But Lenin's argument was Ukraine, like any of the other non-Russian peoples in the Soviet Union, had to have the right to separate from Russia because they had been historically oppressed by great Russian chauvinism. It's the Russian version of white supremacy. I mean, the Russian version where the Tsar took over the lands of non-Russian speaking people and severely oppressed them. Lenin said Russia, the old Russia, was the prison house of nations. And his struggle for self-determination for oppressed nationalities 
is a hallmark of what we might call Leninism. And Vladimir Putin blamed Lenin for the existence of Ukraine. He said it was kind of a crime committed against great Russia. And also the fact that the Soviet constitution gave Ukraine the right to secede also laid the seeds. He said this in his speech, his February 21st speech. That's why the Soviet Union broke apart. Now, that's not true. Boris Yeltsin, who was the leader of Russia, who, by the way, appointed Vladimir Putin 10 years later to be his successor, he was the one who defected from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, built up a bourgeois, pro-Western, pro-imperialist, pro-NATO political infrastructure in what had been the Soviet Union. And it was Yeltsin who led the destruction, the literal dissolution. He signed a decree. And Walter, you'll know the name of the decree. I can't remember it, but it's in December 1991 where they dissolved the Soviet Union, even though they had no legal right to dissolve the Soviet Union. Why didn't Putin, when he's explaining why they might need to take military operations in Ukraine and when he's complaining about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, instead of blaming non-Russian, quote, nationalists and extremists, he could have blamed Boris Yeltsin. He could have blamed Yeltsin, but he didn't. Instead, he blamed Lenin. I mean, Lenin's policies kept the Soviet Union together. The Ukrainian and Russian people were one people. There might have been differences. There might have been struggles, but they were not at war with each other. They weren't killing each other. So my point, Walter, before we move on and end this point is we have to be independent political movement. We're against our government. Again, the government that speaks in our name, we're building an independent working class movement but we have to have our own assessment, our own analysis, and not hook our wig into some other foreign government simply because it has a contradiction with U.S. imperialism. You'll get the last word, and then we're going to Esther to talk about the truly imperialist and racist media coverage of this whole episode. Yeah, well, I mean, by the way, that's the Belavez Accords that you're referring to that illegally, unilaterally ended the existence of the Soviet government, even though the vast majority of Soviet citizens voted in a referendum to maintain the Soviet Union. 70% of Soviets in March 1991 voted no to a referendum that called for the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And Yeltsin, the Russian nationalist and capitalist wrote her, he was the one who dissolved it. That's right. So some democracy, that was the return of democracy, capitalist democracy to Russia and the other republics of the Soviet Union. Completely outrageous. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, as anti-war activists, as anti-imperialists inside of the United States, we're uniquely positioned to place pressure on NATO, on the U.S. government, on really the principal forces, drivers of this conflict. And so that's what we should be focused on. But of course, in the course of doing that and organizing that movement, which will require the participation of many, many, many more people than are already active in the anti-war movement, we can't be saying we agree with every single thing that Vladimir Putin says or every single action of the Russian government. There's no need to do that. I mean, we can be clear and direct about the fundamental role that NATO and U.S. aggression has played in creating the conditions for this conflict. But we can have an independent analysis. We don't have to agree with every single thing the Russian government or any government for that matter does while we carry out that essential task. All right, let's move on to the truly horrific media coverage. You know, Esther, they, the old cliche, the first casualty in war is the truth. 
Well, in American media, the casualty of truth is before the war, during the war, after the war. It's nonstop. Anyway, truly horrendous coverage. Right. So I was when I was listening to you and Walter talk, I was just thinking it's precisely a factual rendering of NATO and U.S. provocations that is missing from this onslaught of media coverage. These statements from the U.S., NATO and their corporate media are able to build on their own white supremacist, ahistorical narratives to create this unprecedented chorus that I have never heard or seen in my life against a war. You know, and it is precisely because it's in Europe, white people are being killed, injured and displaced. And because it fits neatly into their effort to paint Putin and Russians as barbaric or to isolate Russia. And I listened to a kind of an online rally on Saturday that was sponsored by Code Pink and a few other organizations. And luckily, Vijay Prashad was the first speaker at the rally. And he pointed out that on the same day that Russia went into Ukraine, Syria and the Syrian people were still being bombed. Yemen and the Yemeni people were still being bombed. And what is the world's worst humanitarian crisis in which the U.S. is actually complicit in the war crimes and arming the Saudis and actually helping them to refuel and do kinds of different kinds of military logistics in the war, attacking Yemeni people. And, you know, as this imperialist chorus has increased in size and volume, so has the obvious hypocrisy that you've noticed also increase of what I call these colonizers and slavers and the inventors of industrialized war, you know, some of whom invaded Russia at least four times in history from the West and through the border of what is now Ukraine. And that they also empowered the far right in Ukraine in the 2014 coup against the democratically elected president at that time. So we want to point out that Alan McLeod compiled some of the really openly racist coverage that, you know, occurred over the weekend. And we want to play some of that. And he had like kind of your like your racist greatest hits. And so he obviously was like listening to the TV coverage, talking back to the TV like I am one to do. And we well, heard some curse words in there. Or yeah, at least yeah, one. yeah. So we'll we'll give it the full treatment here. But we want to introduce it by saying that the first clip is from the BBC. It's Ukraine's deputy chief prosecutor. Then we go to CBS and CBS foreign correspondent Charlie Degada. And then the final piece is from Al Jazeera. And that is just the commentator speaking. So let's go to that. Me, I'm sorry. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. We're playing in the latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And, And what's compelling is just looking at them the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like 
any European family that you would live next door to. F*** off. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that was the reaction of a lot of people listening to this coverage over the weekend. It was overwhelming and you had to turn it off and like put on an NBA game or HGTV. Or something. You had to put something else on because it was just overwhelming. I can't decide which one was worse, but I especially in the second one where he catches himself and he's like, Oh God, like I'm saying something that might be bad. The CBS guy. Yeah. But even then he goes on to say what might be the worst comment, which is like a city that I wouldn't hope would have this kind of thing going on as if like he hopes it happens other places or as if or it just, just doesn't matter. It. He, he just expects, expects it, it and it's fine. Right. I mean, yeah. just disgusting. Absolutely. And so, you know, this was the type of racist coverage that happened all over the weekend. And, you know, actually, when I really think about the statements I heard from the United Nations, even from our own United Nations ambassador, Linda Thomas Greenfield, I thought of a conversation I had recently with Gerald Horn when he talked about how the United States as the settler project, you know, and which, you know, is a white supremacist settler project. And you don't have to be white to have settler solidarity. You don't have to be white to be in solidarity with that project. But this coverage is just totally erasing the fact of, like I said, the 2014 coup is erasing the fact of the thousands of ethnic Russians since that coup killed in eastern Ukraine by the Ukrainian government armed with U.S. and NATO by the U.S. and NATO countries, erasing the eight years of Ukraine urged on by the U.S. to implement peace accords called the Minsk Accords that recognize the autonomy of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. So erasing this eight years of Ukraine not implementing these peace accords and Russia believing in these peace accords, believing that this process would deliver some justice and peace for Russian-speaking people in that region. And so now that Russia has responded in this way that we're not endorsing necessarily, but at least if this history was covered by the corporate media, people would understand more about Russia's actions. They would understand what's led up to this and not just this, oh, this has come out of the blue. And it's, I think it's important that in both Biden's statement he made last week and in all the corporate media I heard over the weekend, they've made it a point to call the attack unprovoked. I think that's very important for us to point that out. And I'll finally say that it's important that this hypocrisy is being covered online by independent news sources like the show and Empire Files, which we partnered with, and where more and more people are getting their information. Because right now, I mean, I think over the weekend, RT and Sputnik, for example, were banned in Australia and in Poland. And the EU, the head of the EU came out suggesting that they would be banned in all of EU countries, as if she has that power. I don't know. But there's a big move to squash independent news sources and independent voices. I heard from a listener to On the Ground that he tried to share the link to my show. And Facebook told him that they were limiting the sharing of this type of information. Mm. I was just like, really? I mean, did you get a screenshot? So... It's important for us to keep up this dissemination of independent voices, independent news sources, and engage in this battle of ideas, which is just as fierce as the battle, more fierce than the battle happening in Ukraine right now.
Yeah, I mean, I wonder if any of those same media outlets or reporters would use those same formulations about an unprovoked attack when they were describing NATO's attack, bombing, invasion, destruction of Libya in 2011. I mean, do they apply the same standards there? Libya certainly didn't have any active hostilities with a NATO member country. I mean, that would be the most ridiculous thing in the world to think that Libya was about to invade France or bomb Spain or Italy. Certainly, that was an unprovoked attack in 2011 that NATO launched on Libya. And yet that was portrayed as just like a wonderful act of charity, essentially, saving the Libyan people from the evil Gaddafi dictatorship. I mean, I guess Libya doesn't count as one of the, quote unquote, relatively civilized countries that the corporate bourgeois media in the United States decides that they care about. But that was an unbelievable atrocity that's completely relevant to keep in mind at this moment when NATO is presenting itself as the guardians of peace. I mean, the fabric of Libyan society was shredded to such an extent that the slave trade reemerged in Libya. I mean, it's just incredible the level of hypocrisy that we're seeing here. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, Libya had the highest standard of living in Africa. And to show you how far this road of hypocrisy has gone, you know, war criminals are even, you know, getting into the act, you know, emboldened to get on TV and make all types of statements. So we even have Condoleezza Rice being interviewed on Fox News over the weekend. I think we have a clip of her talking. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I'd, I'd agree. it is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. That was Condoleezza Rice. For people who, who might not know enough about Condoleezza Rice, she was George W. Bush's national security advisor in 2003 when they organized the invasion of Iraq. The Lancet Medical Journal in England in 2010 said by that time, they thought as many as a million Iraqis who would not have died had it not been for the U.S.-British invasion did die. And hundreds of thousands of Iraqis certainly died. I know casualty counts are disputed. Huge number of dead Iraqis, not to mention the thousands of American soldiers who died and the tens of thousands of American soldiers who, if they didn't die, they had life-changing injuries of a physical or a psychological character. And, you know, Iraq was a sovereign country. It was a member of the United Nations. It was not threatening anybody. It had suffered 13 years of economic sanctions. It was completely surrounded. It had voluntarily gone along with the UN disarmament. Even on the day of the invasion, March 19, 2003, You could see on CNN images of of Iraqis destroying their own weapons to show that they were in conformity with U.N. weapon inspection resolutions on the day they were about to be invaded. And it, it brought them no relief. Shock and awe invasion took place. And shock and awe, by the way, that was the term employed by the slave owners in South Carolina against slave rebellions to awe and to shock enslaved people should they dare to rise up. I mean, this imperialist, racist invasion of Iraq. And it was a complete violation 
of Iraq's sovereignty. So if, if Condoleezza Rice, now Esther is saying this, a war crime in Ukraine, well, it was a war crime then. And shouldn't war criminals like the war criminals who went to Nuremberg, shouldn't they be put on trial? And then just think about Afghanistan. I mean, there were no Afghans on those planes that struck the World Trade Center or the Pentagon. Nobody says there were. The Taliban government did provide safe haven or training facilities for Osama bin Laden. But after September 11th, one, they said that they were willing to turn over Osama bin Laden to a third country to stand trial, to which George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists, and then launched the invasion. But even by 2010, remember Leon Panetta, who was Obama's CIA chief, he testified before Congress and they said, well, how many Al-Qaeda are, are there still in Afghanistan? And Leon Panetta said, oh, about 50, maybe max, 50 Al-Qaeda. So for 10, 11 more years, the U.S. bombed the people of Afghanistan. They had nothing to do with September 11th. And they died. 240,000 Afghans died, according to the U.S. own statistics, because of NATO's invasion. Are they people? Are they civilized? Who gets to define who gets the right to live or die? Who's civilized enough to live or die? I mean, these imperial racist media commentators, they're, well, let's put it frankly, they aren't the war criminals. They are the apologists for the war criminals and they are their publicists. And that's how we should understand them. Well, I think it's just a good place for us to fold in this other story that we want to get to because Holman is is making this point that 18 to 29 year olds don't understand how important the Cold War is and how important it is to for the U.S. to continue to send arms to Ukraine and to, I guess, hold up the whole ideas of the Cold War. And I think it's because... People, young people have lived through this hypocrisy that you're talking about. You know, they grew up during this 20-year war of on Afghanistan, which turned out to be against people who weren't even involved in 9-11. They've seen the, the hypocrisy and the carnage in Iraq. And so the history that he thinks that Biden should tell young people about is almost like irrelevant. It's almost like a lie anyway. Right. So I think that that's why that young people aren't as agreeing to this NATO and U.S. arming Ukraine and getting involved in this conflict on the other side of the world. That is just a continuation of endless war for the United States. Right. They call it that generation, the Nintendo generation, quote unquote, you know, with this derisiveness as if like kids and young people don't have a right to sort of, you know, play. He complains that playing video games has made this generation too sedentary. So they're not up for the physical challenges of military service. But even more importantly, their brains, Walter, their brains, the brains of people maybe in your generation or a little bit younger have been skewed And so you don't, one, you don't understand why war is good. (laughs) And two, you think socialism is good. So I just want to read from the middle of this op-ed, quote, this is bigger than Ukraine. Think about the alarming number of young people who identify as socialist, oblivious to the repeated failures of socialism. When the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics surveyed 18 to 29 year olds this past fall, a bare 51% majority agreed that the U.S., is the leader of the free world. The same number said we should be. 51%, guys. 
I mean, they don't even believe in, in the rules-based order the U.S. has set up that's killed so many people. Instead of playing video games, they should have been sent to boot camp at a young age, Walter. Sure. I mean, that's what these people, what these war hawks would want. I mean, that's really all they see young people as anyway, is just cannon fodder in waiting, essentially. Uh, people who can be sacrificed for whatever imperial design that they have going on, whatever war they want to initiate, whatever slaughter they want to start next. Yeah, I mean, I think they're probably extremely upset that young people are actually thinking about these things, thinking about the wars that they wage. And this is further evidence. I mean, the phenomenon that he's identifying is true. I mean, younger people are much more skeptical about U.S. imperialist actions around the world. And I think it's it's further evidence that the system as a whole has become, to a really significant extent, delegitimized in the eyes of, of a large number, maybe the majority of, of young people in this country. I mean, it's become so clear after just repeated, profound world events throughout the course of the life of somebody who was, say, born in 1990, that this U.S. government only cares about multimillionaires and billionaires. They wage war after war after war based on based on obvious lies, lies that everybody knows are lies. And when you're in trouble yourself, right? Like, for instance, you know, the tens of millions of people who are unemployed after the pandemic hit, then you're on your own. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of completely well-deserved, and I, I'm very happy about this, you know, skepticism, but essentially everything that the U.S. government does on the part of a lot, a lot of young people across the country. Yeah. And when you when you add in the fact that more young people are getting their news from online sources, I heard all this hand wringing over the weekend. Also, like from shows on CNN, like like reliable sources about, you know, how TikTok and Instagram is having such an influence in terms of the information that people get. And they realize that these platforms are actually getting more eyeballs, more ears than they're getting their audience is getting older and, you know, shrinking dramatically. And when you look at platforms like TikTok and Instagram, you see that more independent voices have an opportunity to be heard. You know, even though we are squashed and, you know, shadow banned, as they call it. So I heard a lot of hand wringing about that. The fact that independent voices have a fighting chance of getting more exposure online. And when you also look at young people seeing promises made to them, for example, that their student loans would be canceled, right? That they would get assistance in this latest package that Biden totally reneged on from his campaign promises. So you have a lot of people seeing not only the hypocrisy of war, but how at home, like you said, in terms of unemployment, but also especially student loans, have they been lied to that? The government, the system, the system loses its credibility on both ends. Let's go on to another story. Nicole, we have been talking a lot about the rise of the far right, which includes not only fascist, but certainly fascist forces, nascent fascist forces in the United States and around the world. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been going on a lot for the last 15 or 20 years. Again, the center of bourgeois politics in many ways is collapsing. If the left is not strong, if there's a vacuum, it will be filled by the right. And the, the right can take advantage of the same grievances and the same anger and turn it into an ideologically right-wing, anti-worker, anti-people, and frequently racist, sexist, and anti-gay orientation. And in fact, that's happened. And COVID has been a vector for this. 
COVID is not only a vector for disease, it's also a vector for the disease of far-right politics and fascism. And it's going on. There's some important stories about what's happening in Eastern Germany. There's also an important story about what happened to this, this hospital or hospitals in New Hampshire and in other states where people are basically terrorizing hospitals and healthcare professionals. Again, this is the far right merging into what I believe is a nascent fascist movement. And the so-called Freedom Convoy that was in Ottawa, which we explained is not a workers uprising. The Teamsters and the other labor organizations in Canada denounced it. 90% of Canadian truckers are actually vaccinated and they're part of the Teamsters and the Teamsters condemned it. The Freedom Convoy, so-called, again, just a sort of a misnamed sort of branding for a far-right movement is coming across the United States. It's small in number, but getting a lot of media attention, coming to Washington, D.C. in the coming days against vaccine mandates at the very moment that most of the vaccine mandates and mask mandates have already been lifted. So it's a big question like, why are they coming? Because obviously it's not really about vaccine mandates. It's not about mask mandates. It's building a right-wing movement. It was the Tea Party in 2010. You know, it was Stop the Steal leading to January 6th. Now it's the Freedom Convoy. It has different masks, different iterations, but at its heart, it's a very right-wing movement. But these are disturbing stories about these hospitals. Really, really disturbing. And of course, everyone knows this, but I just want to say this up front. This is happening at a moment where people working in hospitals are already you know, work to the point of exhaustion, are already terrified of getting sick, getting their families sick, are already working very long hours, you know, overtime, lots of extra shifts. But yeah, in New Hampshire in December, calls flooded into a hospital in Claremont, New Hampshire, and emails that were flooding into senior staff accounts, and they were getting voicemails, flooding through their voicemail systems and phones, demanding that a patient be given ivermectin. The calls were coordinated by a group called Truth Seekers 88, and the calls were so overwhelming that on the first day, they shut down their phone line, and then the calls and emails continued for over a week. One voicemail threatened a quote-unquote military extraction of the patient, and nine days in, they received a bomb threat. I mean... So a patient comes in to the hospital in Claremont, and these people who are not doctors, not nurses, not healthcare professionals... They start bombarding the hospital because the hospital hasn't provided this patient with an unproven treatment. And then it escalates where they're threatening to basically blow up the hospital. Right. And it's not only unproven, it's not approved by anything like you're saying, but it's also completely not authorized by anyone either. So even if the doctors wanted to, they'd be risking their own licenses and their own practice and their own work to be doing that. But also it's not something that even makes sense. I mean, we could spend all day talking about ivermectin and the politics somehow around this one drug. And I don't, I don't think we want to do that, but, but it's not something that makes much scientific sense either. In Montana, a hospital had staff face harassment and threats when they wouldn't use again, other treatments, treatments that weren't approved by the FDA or the CDC or otherwise authorized in any way. In Boise, Idaho, Ashley Carvalho, a 34 year old doctor who worked in an intensive care unit said that last September, a patient's relative grew belligerent and threatened her when she declined to administer ivermectin. She was quoted saying, he said, I have lots of ways to get people to do what I want, and they're all sitting in my gun safe at home. In Chicago, a vocal QAnon adherent 
who notably was a Bernie supporter in 2016 before the Democratic Party rigged the primary, before, you know, Bernie was essentially shut out of the primary. This woman died in September due to COVID and an underlying illness of hyperthyroidism. But again, you know, there were a large group of people calling, harassing, really actively pushing to try to get her, not only to get her to get ivermectin, but to get her out of that facility so that they could administer this, you know, outside of the hospital. And then, like you said, Brian, in Dresden, Germany, there's this report and I'm going to read from an article about it. First, vaccine opponents attacked the police. Then a group of them chatted online about killing the governor. And one day, an angry crowd beating drums and carrying torches showed up outside the house of the health minister of the eastern state of Saxony. The minister, Petra Köping, had just got home when her phone rang. It was a neighbor and he sounded afraid. When Ms. Köping peered out of her window into the dark, she saw several dozen faces across the street flickering in the torchlight. Quote, they came to intimidate me and threaten me. She recalled in an interview, I had just come home and was alone. I've been in politics for 30 years, but I've never seen anything like this. There's a new quality to this, unquote. The crowd was swiftly dispersed by the police, but the incident in December marked a turning point in a country where the SA, Hitler's paramilitary organization, was notorious not just for showing up at the homes of political rivals with torches and drums, but for attacking and even murdering them. And since then, hospital staff have also been attacked in Dresden. And there was another protest that was planned at the minister's house that the police broke up. So I'm, you know, it's getting to the point like this article talked about where people are stalking down officials and threatening them inside or or right directly outside of their own homes in the dark with torches. Like this is serious, extremely serious. And as you said, I mean, this is connected into this very right wing you know, fascist movement. Nicole, you said the name of that group was Truth Seekers 88, right? Is that is that correct? Yep. 88 is internet lingo to indicate that you're a Nazi. H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. And so 88 means Heil Hitler. I mean, that's that's what these people's politics really are. Now, I'm, I'm sure if you ask them, they'd be like, oh, no, it means something else or it's just a joke or whatever. There's obviously plausible deniability built into that. But they're indicating what they really think about the world. I mean, it's not hyperbole to say these people are fascists. And remember that we also talked about a Nazi group congregating outside of a hospital in Massachusetts after Trump claimed that white people were being denied COVID treatment and COVID vaccinations. And so that was the same week that you had the Nazi attacks in Florida. Another group was in Massachusetts outside of a hospital protesting and really caused a lot of threats and, you know, just alarm to the people working in that hospital. I bet. Esther, you know, the government failed to keep the peace, obviously, in place after place. And in fact, violated the peace. It went to war. It failed when it came to COVID. Almost a million Americans are dead, more than 900,000 people in this country dead. And again, instead of a rational approach to public health, it's all these conspiracy-based COVID denialist movements that are merging with the far right. Again, another failure of the system. And of course, the overarching failure of capitalism is the failure to you know, step up and to do anything about what is obviously a looming existential crisis when it comes to global warming. And you know, we're just reading, and you were just talking about that article that said young people aren't, are too socialistic and too anti-war. <laughs> 
They're also very, very concerned about climate change. A lot of young people are taking action all around the country and all around the world because they actually feel that they're being defuturized because of the failure of the government and the capitalist establishment to stem or to mitigate the danger, the existential danger from climate catastrophe. There's two articles that really jumped out at me this week, and I think you've been following the story. One is a UN report from the IPCC, very alarming report. And then the second is what the Supreme Court is about to do. Anyway, let's talk about these two stories. Right. So as the world has been absorbed with coverage of Ukraine, very one-sided and biased coverage that's not really giving the necessarily history and importance of this nuclear power being backed into a corner. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and this is a body that we've talked about before, they have issued a new report saying something we all know, that nations aren't doing enough to protect cities, farms, and coastlines from the hazards that climate change has unleashed so far, such as record droughts and rising seas, let alone from the even greater disasters in store as the planet continues to warm. And I'm reading from a New York Times article. And so this report was written by 270 researchers from 67 countries. And the report says that the perils are already visible across the globe. And in 2019, for example, storms, floods, and other extreme weather events displaced more than 13 million people across Asia and Africa. Rising heat and drought are killing crops and trees, putting millions worldwide at increased risk of hunger and malnutrition. And while mosquitoes carrying diseases like malaria and dengue are spreading into new areas, it says roughly half the world's population currently faces severe water scarcity at least part of the year. And so this report is being issued just months after a world climate summit in Glasgow, where we know that world leaders mouthed many promises and had a lot of verbal confirmations, but in action did very little. And so the other story that I think you mentioned is the case that we already mentioned, and that is the Supreme Court was scheduled to hear on Monday arguments that will basically challenge whether the EPA and the government have the ability to reduce greenhouse gases from power plants. And they're actually hearing a case on a law that really has never been put into place because of so much manipulation by the far right in this country. The Obama administration had put forward something called the Clean Power Plan. And the strategy was to fight climate change by requiring each state to lower carbon dioxide emissions from the electricity sector, primarily by replacing coal-fired power plants with wind, solar, and other clean sources. But this power plan has been tied up in red tape ever since then, several states refusing to implement it, challenging whether the government has a right to implement it, and basically saying, does the government have a right to try to fight climate change? <laughs> Does the government have a Amazing. right to put corporations on some type of regulation so that, you know, we don't all die, you know? And so we'll know more about what the arguments are. But the fact that the Supreme Court 
agree to hear this case means that they are challenging the government's right to try to implement regulations to to help us all really to fight the climate catastrophe. There's another piece that I just wanted to mention really quick is it ties into our coverage of Ukraine. Jamie Henn, he's a director of something called Fossil Fuel Media. He wrote in Common Dreams this weekend that big oil is trying to profit from the war in Ukraine. And he said that Putin's tanks had barely crossed the border into Ukraine before the American Petroleum Institute was out on Twitter attempting to exploit the crisis. Without even a word of solidarity for the people of Ukraine, API launched into a set of four demands for the White House, all of which would benefit the industry while providing no help at all to Europe or Ukraine. And it says that the fossil fuel industry, which was trying to increase the number of public lands that could be exploited for big oil, claiming that this would would hurt Russia. And so he says, of course, it won't help Russia at all. And they wanted the White House to release permits for more drilling on federal lands because of the start of the war. And so this is just an example of these corporations, you know, really having no shame, no, no deterrence, whatever, in their goal to continuing to destroy the environment for profit. All right, Walter, we have come to the end of our episode, but we can't really end without finding out what the biggest stories are in Liberation News newsletter. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, the first thing that I want to urge everybody to check out is that webinar that we mentioned at the beginning of the program titled Ukraine Questions for the U.S. Anti-War Movement. That's between Abby Martin and Brian. You can check out that on liberationnews.org. You can also find it through Breakthrough News and through the Empire Files. There's also the PSL's statement on Russia's military intervention that goes in-depth through some of the most crucial issues related to this conflict, and I think is an excellent, important tool to help explain the basics of what's going on to people who are being bombarded by pro-war propaganda. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled, Neo-Nazis Attempt to Disrupt Red Books Day, Reading at Library in Providence, Community Fights Back. This is a really serious attack on progressive activists, left-wing socialist activists who are holding a reading of the Communist Manifesto in Providence. They were attacked by a mob of Nazis holding a swastika flag. The neighbors came out of their homes, yelled at them, chased them away. But this is a, a very troubling development that people in Providence really need their solidarity. Encourage you to check out that article as well and sign up for a newsletter. You can find the link at the top. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Nicole, we have, um, again, the fifth episode of The Real Story, which we're going to be doing with Eugene per year. It'll come out on Breakthrough News Wednesday night and then as a podcast on all the streaming services Thursday morning. The war in Ukraine is obviously changing global politics. The world is not going to look the same going forward. Whatever the outcome is, and we don't know the outcome, this is a very dynamic, very dangerous situation. Anything can happen. The things that we thought were likely to happen two weeks ago, they didn't happen. I don't think we were anticipating. Well, I know we were not anticipating a full-scale military operation by the Russian Federation into Ukraine. We were contemplating perhaps there would be a military operation in 
in the eastern part of the country, in Donbass. Obviously, the calculations of the Putin government were far different from what we anticipated or I think what many people anticipated. Anyway, we're going to keep following all of these stories, learn about politics, learn about the history. Don't follow the the mainstream corporate media, as Esther pointed out. Not only is it imperialist, not only is it racist, it's just wrong. You can't really understand world politics if you listen to the capitalist corporate-owned media. That's why independent media like the Socialist Program or On the Ground or Breakthrough News, The Empire Files, is so critically important. And we urge all of you to continue to show your support for media like this. You can show your support for the Socialist Program by subscribing. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program and become a subscriber. We can't do it without you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.